Well, we all know what it means to wait, right? Um, we hate to wait. Uh, we are not conditioned to wait. And yet, as we know all through Scripture, God oftentimes calls upon us to wait, right? So in the book of James, on uncommon faith, we're going to be talking about this issue of waiting, of patience, as we dive into chapter 5 and verses 7 through 12. So if you have your Bible, let's turn there, and you have a bulletin. If you're a guest with us for the first time, we want to welcome you. Thank you you're here. And there is a connection card in your bulletin. You can fill out with as much information as you feel comfortable giving us and then place that in a basket at the exit door, and there is a gift for you on your way out. Let me just remind you as a church, you're making way to the book of James. Uh, it is our snowflake time, which means that you're not a flake. It just simply means we are helping families in the Groveport area with Christmas, so the if you're not familiar with this, uh, on the front of it, it'll have, uh, a, it says, like this says, girl, age 11, socks, five, six girls. So uh, you just pick up the snowflake of what you're going to purchase. Uh, you return the snowflake with the gift unwrapped. Please do not unwrap the gift because we know which gifts go to which family, and then we'll take care of all the wrapping and everything else. So that tree is full of snowflakes. We would like to empty that out in the next couple of weeks because we need to have these back, your, the gifts back by December the 10th, okay? So this thing we do every year, and you have always been very gracious and very kind in helping so many families in our community, and we certainly appreciate that. Also, if you're here for the pastor's breakfast today, breakfast, lunch, okay, the pastor's lunch, um, it will be ready immediately following the service, and my wife will be back here by the back doors, and she will take you to the room that we will be uh, having lunch together and uh, a little time of uh, sharing and fellowship. So, James chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 7, he says, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land and, and for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because of the Lord's coming, it is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed are those who have, been, who have persevered. You have been heard of, you even heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. Now, as James is coming to the end of his letter, he addresses one of those issues that challenges our faith perhaps more than anything else. And it is the issue of pain or suffering, trial, perse uh, persecution, uh, you know, persecution for us is not like persecution for believers in other countries where literally uh, if you become a follower of Christ, you're disowned by your family, you may be um, losing your job, you may be losing your home, you might be physically harmed, or you may even experience death. That happens all across the world. Now, we in America, we don't experience uh, persecution to that degree, but certainly when we are going through periods of, especially extended periods of any kind of pain or suffering that calls upon us to wait and to be patient, um, wow, we, 
we can experience these things and begin having a very difficult time in our walk with God. And for many people, this is the big pushback as to why they either don't believe in God or they, they may believe that God exists, but he's not really involved with creation. Or for some of them, it's the, the pushback uh, that's why they're unable to put their faith in Christ because of this issue of pain and, and of suffering. And so it raises a lot of questions for people. But the two biggest questions I get asked is, hey, pastor, why is God allowing this to happen in my life? And when's this going to go away? You know, when, when is this going to be done? Uh, I, 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 I don't understand why. And I, I just want to know when God's going to put a stop to it. Now, James gives us a two-word solution. But it's not a solution that we like, right? It's, it's not a solution that we say, oh, yippee, um, wow, that's really great when it comes to pain and suffering. Now, if it were not for James, who's the one who is saying this, I probably wouldn't put as much weight into what he says. Um, the reason I feel so confident about James' solution to our suffering and pain is because he was the half-brother of Jesus, right? We remember this from the very beginning. He was not a philosopher. He was not a speaker. He was not a writer. He's not some guy who went off in the desert for two years and th said, you know what, I'm going to contemplate life, and I'm going to try to figure out why there's so much pain and suffering in the world. And when I return, I'm going to have the answer for you. Just know that. That's not James. James grew up in the home of Jesus. James did not believe anything was special about Jesus. James did not believe in Jesus' miracles. James did not come to faith in Christ until after Jesus' resurrection, you'll recall. And so James believed and put his faith in his brother as Messiah and spent the rest of his life convincing his own Jewish people about who Jesus was and what he came to do and why they should put his, their trust in him regardless. So James comes to us from the context of not being a great learned man or a studied philosopher, but he comes from the context of a guy who saw a dead man walking. And James says, you know, if, if I've seen this dead man walking, Jesus, therefore we can be confident in here. And so I'm going to give you the answer. I'm going to give you the solution. I'm going to give you the response to pain and suffering in your life. You're not going to like my answer, but it's the answer nonetheless. And the answer is be patient. Now, again, by the, the video and, and anything in life tells us, we, we are not patient people. We are not hardwired for patience. We live in a microwave, um, sitcom world in which everything is kind of tidied up in 30 minutes and we've got it all, you know, worked out or... You know, we have, as he said, iPhones, we can get any information. It used to be like if I was sitting in a restaurant eating with somebody and they asked me a question about the name of a football player or somebody, some other trivia, I had no idea. It's like, oh man, I wish I could figure that out. They got brain freeze. I, I can't. Now you try to wait for somebody to come in and give you the information. Now you just pick up, ask Siri, she answers all your questions for you, right? We don't have to be patient anymore. I mean, even in, even, even in fast food I don't get this. Fast food, McDonald's, uh, Arby's, all of these places, Wendy's, it doesn't matter, Chick-fil-A, where you go, now they have double fast lanes on the outside with people out there taking your order as you're going around the fast lane so they can get you around there faster. 
It is said that if you pick up your phone and you're on Facebook and you're trying to look at something, if it takes more than five seconds for it to load, you will go on without it. That's how impatient we have become as a society. I remember as a child, I mean, it was so much harder as a child traveling when I was a kid. Kids got it made today. They've got movie screens in their cars and we've got all kinds of you know, electronics to keep them occupied. When I was a kid and I lived in Newark and my great-grandfather was a farmer in Chillicothe, once a year we made the trip to Chillicothe, Ohio for our family reunion. And of course, you know, 70, there weren't all the roads. It took forever. And as a kid, it seems like days to get down there, right? The only bright spot is you got to stop in Baltimore where they had that bear in a cage and he slugged back and coaxed and for entertainment. That was our entertainment. Halfway there, you get to watch the bear, okay? So now it's like we've got everything under the sun for them. Be patient. You've got to be kidding me. That's not an answer. That's an answer you give your kids when you're trying to put them off, right? They ask you for something. You don't want to give it to them right now. Hey, just be patient. Just be patient. It will come to you eventually. Now, notice how long he says we are to be patient. We are to be patient until the Lord's return. That's a long time. Now, to those who are the very first readers of this letter, Jesus hadn't been gone very long, and they really expected his return to happen in just a few months Maybe a year. Here we are, 2,000, over 2,000 years down the road, and we're still being asked. So James says, listen, when you are in a trial, when you're experiencing pain, when you're enduring suffering, when you are in your valley, and you're seeking to persevere and consider it pure joy, my brothers, as you encounter these various trials, he says out of the gate, hey, what you need to do is just be patient. The Lord is coming. Well, Lord, hurry up and get here. Because I'm, I'm ready, right? I'm, right? I'm ready to get out of this. What James does, he simply takes the New Testament theme and stretches it back to us. It's the theme that Jesus gave. It's the theme that the Apostle Paul talked about, Peter talked about. That if we're going to have a living faith that is active, that is moving, that is growing, that is maturing that is developing, then the ultimate solution, the ultimate solution to pain in this life is not found in this world. The ultimate solution to our pain and suffering will not happen until Jesus comes again and ushers us into his presence in heaven. And then in Revelation 21, God reminds us that it is there that he will wipe away every tear and that everything that has been wrong will be made right that we will have experienced our ultimate healing in life. And so we spend a lot of time and we spend a lot of energy and we spend a lot of money trying to make heaven here on earth, but heaven will never be here on earth. It's the bookends. Here's the fall. Here's God restoring what has fallen in the book of Revelation, Genesis, Revelation, everything in between. There is always going to be pain. There's always going to be suffering. There's always going to be some kind of trial that you are experiencing in life. And my experience has shown me that the harder I try to create a wrinkle-free world, <laughs> the worse it gets. Right? How many of you live with a perfectionist? Don't look at them. They're all about trying to control everything and trying to control the environment and their world and making heaven on earth, and it drives everybody nuts. 
But eventually we run out of time, we run out of money, we run out of youth, we energy, friends, family, and we have to come to the conclusion that James takes us to that this isn't heaven and it will never be. So be patient. God is going to, he's going to do, he's going to accomplish all that he began in your life at the moment you receive Christ, but that will not come to completion until heaven. However, Here's another reason why you need to be patient is because God is always at work doing something in you in the here and now. He is always at work doing something in you. That's the example of the farmer. I mean, when I first, you know, read these verses as a young believer, I'm thinking, you know, James is talking about this and a farmer, why would you mention a farmer? I got people dying around me. I got people sick. I got people who are suffering financial problems. And you give me an example of a farmer? But you know what it is about a farmer is a farmer is, is, is not a control person. A farmer can plow the field, can plant the seed, but once the seed is planted, it's beyond his control. It's the environment, the elements, the rains that come, the sunshine that causes the seed to die and to begin sprouting up through the earth. So the farmer has to work. Yes, he plants the seed. He prepares the field. He plants it. Now it's beyond his control. But watch this. Even though he cannot see the seed, and this is the point of James, is that though you may not see God's hand at work in your life in the middle of your trial or your perseverance of a uh, deep, painful experience, I'm telling you, God is always at work inside of you. There is never a time that he is not at work inside of you. Because as Paul reminds us, God is in the process of conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. He uses painful events. He uses joyful events. He uses every aspect of your life in order to accomplish his ultimate goal. And so he says, man, let's, let's be patient like the, like the farmer um, because God's up to something. You may not understand it. It may be difficult. It may be agonizing. But your response is to what? Be patient. And then he says what? Be to stand firm because, again, the Lord's coming is near. That word stand firm literally means to reestablish your heart. Because here's what I know and here's what you know. That the longer that painful event, that painful valley drags out in your life, the more your heart gets, gets distorted. Your view of God becomes distorted your heart can be filled now with fear and with doubt and anxiety and all the negative things as the evil one comes against you and he's infiltrating your mind and your spirit with these, your heart with these things. And so there's just something that becomes, gets, gets knocked out of balance and you wonder and you ask the question, well, God, you know, uh, are you really in control? Are you really loving me? Do you really care about me? And so we, we launch off into all of these different avenues that we all have, especially as the pain goes deeper and the light around us seems to be going darker and it seems like it's just like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and there's so much that I want and so much I want to see happen and so and so we get impatient because we're saying God I don't see what how this is doing any good in my life I don't see your hand involved in this at all and so Lord why is this happening and when do I get out of it and so James says, well, here's the third thing. You need to be patient with each other. Why would he say that? 
He says, the Lord's coming is near. Now be patient with one another. Because when we, when we are in the midst of pain and when we are in the midst of suffering and we are in the midst of impatience, we become very short-fused and we become very critical and we become uh, very uh, uneasy to live with, to say it nicely, right? If you are suffering physically from physical ailments over an extended period of time, your patience runs low. Because this is something of vital importance to you, right? And if it's something of vital importance to you, you, you assume this is of vital importance to God, and therefore God would operate on your timetable. But since he's not operating on my timetable, then it must not be as important to him as it is to me. Oh, I can assure you that it is more important to him. Or if I'm having a stretch of financial problems and the pressures come bearing down upon my home, it's very easy to become short-tempered. It's very easy to become impatient. It's very easy to become frustrated and our hearts get all out of kilter. But James says, listen, God is up to, up to something. God is doing something beneath the surface. Hang in there. Do not give up. Persevere. Stay to the end because God is going to bring to completion that which he has begun. You know, my wife and I were sharing with another couple about the journey that we had with our teenage daughters and one who um, just kind of fell away from the Lord and really got into some dark stuff. And it was, you know, the, the more I tried to intervene, the worse it became. And the, and the deeper she went into the darkness. And finally, God said to me, Greg, you've got to let go. You've got to let go. Stop trying to control the situation. Stop trying to control her life. And so what God gave to us was a verse to begin praying over our daughter. And so we wanted God to do what? We wanted God to just swoop in and do something in her life miraculously, instantaneously. But it didn't happen. Year one goes by, year two goes by, year three goes by. She's moving deeper deeper into depression, so much so that when we would come home, we never knew. Would we find her dead or would we find her alive? It was over four years of praying that God made a breakthrough in her life. My point is simply this. I know what it means to become impatient. I know what it means to want something so badly, whether for yourself or for somebody else, that you're like, God, just get it on. Let's move on. Let's, let's hurry up. Let's, let's get this taken care of. But sometimes it takes years. But do not give up. Continue to persevere. As James says to us, do not become impatient. Because the Lord is good. He says the Lord is full of compassion and mercy and he is moving beneath the surface. So be patient with one another. Be patient. And then he kind of gives us a couple of examples. He says be patient because God's promises are true. Be patient because God's promises are true. The two examples he gives us is certainly um, the prophets of old, <clears throat> and I really don't want to focus on that as much as I do on Job, because I think there's some things that we pull out that really ties together what James is really communicating to us. But certainly in the, the prophets, as we know in the Old Testament, they were spokes, 
spokesmen for God. Oftentimes their messages were not received well. Uh, the prophets were mistreated. They were martyred. Um, even though they were speaking on behalf of God. But we notice that James says, in, in light of the, the example of the patient, in the face of suffering, the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, as you know, considered blessed. They're considered blessed because they what? They persevered. They did not give up. They did not break down. Uh, they just continued to be patient and, to, and to, to, to speak the message. I think the prophets teach us that suffering... Suffering helps us to clarify our sense of eternity. They help us to focus more on the significance and lasting priorities of God rather than the passions that we have of the world. That we as followers of Christ who have been called ambassadors, we have been called missionaries, we have been called out of light out of darkness into light, to be on the mission field in our Jerusalem, in our family, in our, our Judea, in our Samaria, where we work, where we live, all of those places that we are God's missionaries, that sometimes we can get so caught up and, and our impatience is so wrapped up in those things and priorities are really not the, the priorities of God that sometimes God has to give us a moment to recalibrate our hearts upon which, what is really important, what our priorities should really be, which leads me to Job, because this is one of the most difficult ones for us to understand. In the book of Job, it opens in a very bizarre way. As you know, Satan, uh, God, God's enemy, and certainly Job's enemy, they're having a conversation, and Satan you know, is asked, have you seen all the people of the world? Uh, man, there's none like Job. He's, he's a righteous man. And of course, Satan challenges God. He just simply says, hey, the only reason he loves you, the only reason he is committed to you, the only reason he is righteous before you is because you have so blessed him. I mean, you've blessed him with a family. You've blessed him with cattle. He's got servants. He's got property. He's got it all. Who would not love you and serve you and be committed to you if they, if they had all this stuff. And God says, I, I don't think that's it. I, I think it's his character. I think that's why he worships me, why he loves me. And Satan just drops the gauntlet and he says, well, prove it. Let me have some time with him. Let me touch his life a little bit. And God gives him permission. Isn't that amazing? And so Satan swoops in and Job loses, like, everything. His children, his servants, his cattle, his property. I mean, he's destitute. If that weren't bad enough, Satan comes back to God a second round. And he says, listen, I, I think the reason he's not caved yet is because I haven't had a chance to touch him, his body. And God says, okay. This is why this book is so difficult for many people. Why would God do that? Why would God treat Job like he was some puppet in a chess match with Satan? And so he's given permission. As you remember, that, that there's just boils and, and just Job is in this just physically just horrible condition. He's literally taking clay pots and scraping his skin and the disease off his body. And interestingly enough, the only thing that gets left behind out of all that Job had and possessed was his, was his wife. 
who said, just, just, yeah, right? Why not leave the dog, okay? Because the dog is always loyal. So what's the wife say? Well, why don't you just curse God and die? There's a word of encouragement. Job says, I'm not going to do it. And so most of the book of Job is a dialogue between Job and his friends. They're trying to figure out why is this happening. Remember, they're not privy to this conversation that went on between God and Satan. He has no idea that conversation went on. And he's trying to figure out why am I going through this time of pain and suffering when all I've ever tried to do is to be righteous. All I've ever tried to do is to live the right way. And so his friends come along and they start explaining why terrible things are happening to them, to, to Job. And, uh, you know, he's basically, uh, clearly, if, 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 God were, if God were blessing you, it's because you were righteous. If he's not blessing you, then obviously there's something you have done that's caused God to come against you in such a way, right? And some of you feel that way in your own life. That sometimes when you're in the middle of your battle, when you're in the middle of your valley, you feel like God is, is in some way cursing you. If anyone had a right to ask God great questions, it was Job. His heart was pure before God, and Job could have said to himself, God, you know what, I've kept up my end of the bargain here. I've done all the right things and tried to do it in the right way, and, and now look at me. Look at me. And Job protests that his righteousness and innocence before his friends and before God. And so, like, God, I, I just don't see it. And God says, I'm not punishing you, Job. I, I think you've lived a very virtuous life. The assumption under all of this is, and this is the assumption and why so many people get tripped up with God, is that we get, we think that in our relationship with God, we get what we deserve. And if I lived a good, virtuous life, and I go to church, and I read my Bible, and I study and meditate on God's Word, and I pray, and I give, and I serve, that what I deserve is God's blessing. And when I get the opposite, then there's something wrong. God is unfair. Uh, God is not forthright, forthcoming in this relationship. And so, it, you know, tremendously, if you're blessed, sometimes we can become very prideful. We think, you know, the reason I'm blessed is because I worked harder. I worked smarter. I was, I was better. Uh, I was better in my relationship with God. And the moment that tide turns, all of a sudden it's like, well, I guess I'm getting what I deserve. So what's the first thing we think about, God? What have I done to deserve this? And Job has done nothing to deserve what is happening to him. And it creates all of this, um, these questions. And his friends are trying to help him dialogue and sort through these questions. And then finally, God shows up. And God says, you want to question me? You want to challenge the Almighty? Here we go. And he starts asking Job a lot of questions. Where were you when? Where were you when? And on down the line. And Job, Job, his friends, his friends especially have been critical of God. Why is this happening? And I understand, I get that. The reason we criticize God 
at any moment in our lives is because in our hearts we believe he's made a mistake. He's made a mistake. God, this isn't fair. I've done nothing to deserve this. Why is this happening? How long is this going to take place? When are you getting me out of this? And so when God gets finished, I want you to look in, back in the book of Job. It's, if you'll find the book of Psalms, I want you, there's two things I want to point out in, in drawing this message to a conclusion and tying it back to James. Find the book of Psalms, just keep going left. The book of Job is right in front of the book of Psalms. And I want you to go to chapter 40. Two things I want you to see in the book of Job. At the end of this questioning period, in chapter 40, in verse 2, it says, The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. When was the last time you put your... What does it mean to put your hand over your mouth? It's like... I have nothing else I can say. I, there's, there's no response I can give you. God, you've, you've questioned me because I've questioned you, and, and, and I might have been a little critical because I feel like you've really made a mistake. You've given me the shaft. I've got the short end of the stick. I don't think I deserve this. I think this is unfair. I don't think this is what should be happening to me. In one form or fashion, I can assure you, if you've been in a valley deep enough and dark enough, you've asked those same questions. Now I want you to notice what happens in verse 1 of chapter 42. Here's how this book concludes. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And what is Job acknowledging? Look, God, obviously you were at work behind the scenes. I didn't understand what was going on. I can't understand it. These things are too far beyond me, my realm, my scope. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will answer me. My ears had heard of you. Now, here's the key. But now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I want you to see the shift that happened in Job's life. He said, I've heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. There's a big difference. You see, for a lot of us, we've heard about Jesus. We've heard about God the Father. We've heard about the Holy Spirit. But in the midst of our deep, dark, painful valley, God doesn't want you to just hear. He wants you to see with new eyes. He wants you to see God with fresh eyes. He wants you to be able to say, I have seen you with my own eyes. What does it mean? Obviously, he saw something and experienced God in a way that we rarely do. What did Job see? I think Job saw much like how Isaiah saw. God, my eyes have seen you. I, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I think it's how John saw 
the Lord and fell as a dead man. How Paul saw things that are beyond the earthly realm. And so their eyes were open to God in a way that was a, like a, a new perspective, a new revelation of who God. It's not that God has changed in any way, shape, or form. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But they just, you see God in a different light, in a different way. And in the midst of your valley, that is exactly what God wants for you. That's why James is calling us to be patient to be patient. Listen, ultimately, all of this is going to be done away with when the Lord returns. But in the meantime, you're going to be going through some times of, of suffering and times of perseverance through trials and painful events in your life. And, and, and when we keep our eyes on the Lord, and the one of the key ways that we do that is through meditation, because meditation on the Word of God reveals the heart of God that allows me to see the hand of God operating in my life so that I see God from every single valley that I've ever been through. And I've meditated and I've journaled and I've tried to ask God questions and I'm seeking him, but I'm seeking God for what he wants to do in me, not what I want God to do for me when I approach it from that perspective without Without failure, God has always taught me something. He's enabled me to see him in a new, profound way that has dramatically changed the course of my life. It's the same prayer that Paul had, that we would, we would have our eyes enlightened and opened. So I have one last verse I want you to look at. Just keep going to the right to the book of Isaiah. Because I think here's the reward that we receive for our patience. And what God is seeking to do in the midst of our personal painful events. Whether that comes by way of internal persecution, external. um, Here's what God ultimately wants to do. And what he's doing in some of your lives. And so... Uh, I'll give you the last fill in the blank there. Be patient. Don't make worthless promises. Uh, That's what James says in verse 12. It's like, man, when you're in the foxhole, uh, don't start making a bunch of promises to God. Oh, God, if you get me out by such and such day, uh, I'm going to do this for you. I'll live for you forever, and I'll do all these things. And we make all kinds of promises to God to hurry up and get us through this process. But God is far too wise to fall for those. He knows your motives, your pure motives, what you're really saying. Um, But here, I think, my wife and I have been meditating and just kind of saturating ourselves on this this verse, because you notice how it's titled, some of you might be different, it's the year of the Lord's favor. And I believe that, night, that, that 2018 is going to be the year of the Lord's favor upon our church. And here's why I believe that. And listen to very closely to what um, Isaiah says. The Spirit, now remember Jesus, when he started his earthly ministry, he quoted right out of this. The, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Jesus showed us what it meant to live in a human body, but Holy Spirit dependent. The Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity who is most involved and most engaged in our lives on a day in and day out basis, but the person in the Trinity that we know the, less, the least about. If you go back to the book of Genesis, the first person in the Trinity that is mentioned in the Bible is the Holy Spirit. But you say, well, but the Bible says, opens up, for God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, God, plural, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But then it says the Spirit of God is what is hovering over this darkened, broken world. 
And so God orchestrated, this is the pattern you find in scripture, God orchestrated it all. He, 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 listen, he planned this before the foundation of the world. He orchestrated it. Jesus administered what God orchestrated. He brought the gospel into the world. He was the word of God who spoke into existence. And the Holy Spirit is the one who manifests it. All right? So if you and I are going to walk in God's favor, if you and I are going to walk empowered with the anointing of the Spirit upon us, that is exactly what is available to us as a result of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, here's why God wants to do this. The Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. You know any brokenhearted people? You live with any brokenhearted people? You got brokenhearted relatives, family members, neighbors? To proclaim freedom for the captives. I know a lot of people who are held captive to fear and to shame and to guilt and all kinds of stuff. And release from darkness the prisoners. Those who are in spiritual darkness. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. Provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Oil of gladness instead of mourning. Praise instead of a spirit of despair. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord. Listen, what God is seeking to do, the reward of persevering through your personal trial and suffering, and as God is at work in you, is that God wants to make you a mighty oak. Someone who is immovable, someone who is strong, someone who is sturdy. Why? Because he says, you will be the ones who rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. If God, if God is going to move our country, our world back into and restore that which sin has devastated, it will take the oaks of righteousness, the strong believers in Christ, those who are willing to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the anointing of the Spirit and bringing into the lives of people the answer, the solution, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ in order for them to experience God giving them order in the midst of their chaos, that is bringing his resources from heaven down to bear on earth as it is in heaven. So what we're going to talk about next week, how do we do that? You see, you don't get rebuilders if you don't get broken people healed. That's going to be our focus. So there are two things that God has laid on my heart. We're going to set this up in December in the series called Cosmic Collision. I want to look at Christmas from God's perspective. How do you, how do you address the mess of the world? And we're going to spend the entire year of 2018 in the book of Acts. I've split it up into four sections. We're going to stop in between sections, drill down. Not just looking at every detail of Acts, but looking at the activity of the Holy Spirit all throughout the book of Acts. Because what he began there, he continues today. And what God wants to raise up are mighty oaks through whom the Spirit can move, the Spirit can operate so that we are used to God, that we stop just sitting in a pew, we stop just coming and talking about the, the, you know, the, the wickedness of the world, 
but that we actually become the missionaries out on the field, walking empowered by the Spirit of God. Listen, this is the Spirit that lives inside of you. It's the same Spirit that Jesus was, was um, you know, he was relying upon. Everything he did was because the Spirit had come upon him and was, was anointing him to do. And the same Spirit that the The disciples had the same spirit that's been around since Jesus ascended back into heaven and brought the Holy Spirit into our lives. Listen, when you can't trace God's hand, you you can count on his heart. You can trust his heart, and that is his heart. Listen, God wants to bring deliverance. He wants to turn all of... Now, look at these words. I mean, he wants to take your ashes and, and... the oil of gladness instead of mourning, praise instead of despair. You can experience those things even when you're walking through the deepest, darkest valleys. God wants to set the captives free. He wants to proclaim the, Lord's, the year of the Lord's favor. He wants to comfort those. Listen, there are broken people all around us and we can no longer just journey through life and ignore them. But I'm, I'm, I'm mindful enough to know That until God opens our eyes, until God really opens our eyes, nothing will change. In your life or mine or the life of this church, nothing will change. And so we're praying, we're asking that God would open our eyes to see him as he truly is. Not what you've made him up to be. Don't put your description on God and then when God doesn't live up to your description, now all of a sudden you're mad at him. He's God. He's God. He's outside of us. He's beyond us. But he's a God who is full of compassion and mercy. And he wants to use us in a mighty way. Let's bow our heads together.